Welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And this is episode 196, Scooby-Doo and the Loch Ness Monster for Myth Movie Night. Oh, it's Scooby-Doo time again, Amanda. Scooby-Doo, the the heart and soul of our podcast. You know, it's just a really fun excuse to watch a a calming movie, um, talk a little bit about ridiculous shenanigans, and then get into the mythology of the Loch Ness Monster, which if you enjoyed our Mothman episode, you're going to enjoy this one as well, because there's lots of quoting, lots of sources. We have a very good time. This is less horny, though, than the Mothman episode. I just want to clarify. Much less horny. Markedly less horny, Mm. yes. Do you know who I would definitely invite on a Loch Ness Monster sighting trip to Scotland? I bet it's our patrons. Our patrons. Thank you so much to our supporting producer-level patrons, Philip, Alicia, Deborah, Hannah, Jen, Jessica, Keegan, Landon, Megan, Megan Linger, Megan Moon, Molly, Mr. Folk, Neil, Nikki, Phil Fresh, Polly, Riley, Sarah, and Skyla, as well as our legend-level patrons, Audra, Chelsea, Clara, Donald, Drew, Eden, Francis, Jack Marie, Josie, Lada, Mark, Morgan, Necrofancy, Sarah, and BM Yep Scotty. I'm really glad that the Megans have now become like a like a triple goddess kind of aspect mm-hmm. in our supporting producer level patrons. There's three of them now, and we love them all equally. And they also represent the virgin, the crone, and the mistress. Absolutely. I mean, one Megan's last name is Moon. So like, what else could you want from a trinity of extremely amazing femme goddesses? Love it. Now, Amanda, speaking of things that we love and triple goddesses and whatnot, what have you been listening to, reading, watching lately? I started a fantastic new mystery series. Um, It's called the Veronica Speedwell series by Deanna Rayborn. And the first one is called A Curious Beginning. This is a uh, Victorian woman, natural scientist turned lady detective. Um, And it's fantastic. She is very modern. I learn a lot of new vocabulary words, which is very exciting for me. Um, And my local library had all of them as ebooks. So I am just in heaven and I highly recommend it if you like mysteries, if you like, uh, you know, ladies like parading around and flaunting social norms. Um, And if you like archaeology or history or natural sciences, it's amazing. Oh, she's an archaeologist. Oh, sign me up. She kind of like gets into like renovating a museum. Um, So that's where the archaeology comes in. But no, she is a lepidopterist. So she studies butterflies. Of course. Fantastic. What what it's incredible. Oh, what good things. And Amanda, speaking of that, speaking of very like, uh, specified types of sciences. Do you want to tell our listeners about the newest show on Multitude? Absolutely. So when we recorded a few episodes back, the Norse cosmology episode with Moya McTeer, um, we immediately ended the episode and said, oh my God, we have to keep Moya around. And so we are delighted to share that Exolore, her podcast, is joining Multitude. So this is our newest member of the Multitude family. Um, That means that she is joining the collective where we can all aid in each other's growth and hopefully success. Um, And Exolore is just a fantastic podcast. So if you did not get convinced the first time around, you got to do it. It is world building. It is reviews of worlds that already exist. Like the first one was about Crazy Delicious, which is hilarious and very mythological. Um, And then there are also interviewers with real live world builders, with authors and other people who build worlds of their own. Um, And there are so many fantastic episodes for you to dive into in the back catalog. And more than that, there's a new one coming up every other week. So subscribe now to Exolore or go to exolorepod.com. The links are going to be in the description. But Moya, we're so glad that you chose to join us and And uh, listeners, you're really going to love her. Yeah. If you love science, if you love fiction, if you love science fiction, Exolore is the podcast for you. And that's E-X-O-L-O-R-E. 
fantastic. We're also coming up on a uh, a sort of milestone, Julia. Episode 200 is nigh. Yeah, I just uh, I just flashed back five years ago when we talked about making this podcast and had yeah. an existential crisis. Yeah, uh, it's been it's been a minute, but I think that means that it's a really good time to kind of look back over the body of work that we have assembled so far and do some follow up, do some questions, do some uh, radical speculation about what will happen in the future. So listeners, if you have any questions for us or if you have any uh, like personality test uh, type, you know, like what tea blend are you, whatever, we'll consider anything. Um, And if you also have follow up to any episodes, if you have ways that you've been listening to Spirits episodes while something spooky has happened to you or things that you have learned or personal experiences that you have um, to share about your family or your traditions or your life in response to episodes we've aired in the past, this is a great time to send them in. And we're going to be doing some listener follow-up as well as a kind of mailbag um, Q&A special bonanza extravaganza Mm -hmm. for episode 200. Yes. So if you have those things, you can send them to us via our website. It's spiritspodcast.com slash contact and put mailbag in the subject of your email. We cannot wait. It's going to be super fun. And we'll ask, please, that you send that to us by September 14th so that we have plenty of time to organize those and record them and get it out for you by episode 200. Hell yeah. Well, without further ado, we hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. It's episode 196, Scooby-Doo and the Loch Ness Monster. Julie, we made each other a lot of promises throughout our friendship. Uh, If one of us dies... The other person will delete their search history mm-hmm. and like fandom uh, footprint. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I I need to promise you now that if I ever become a disgraced cryptozoologist, I'm not going to set up an elaborate fraud to try to regain my reputation. And if I do, you have to check me. Okay, that you know what that seems fair. Though I would admire your ingenuity in that sense. Yeah, I think that impulse is best channeled into like a creative writing project, you know, or uh, like a a fun heist of a uh, capitalist. So I like the latter for sure. (laughs) But I think that is a great segue, Amanda, into our myth movie night, which is Scooby-Doo and the Loch Ness Monster. But don't fear, we have a lot to discuss. There is a lot of history here. Uh, there is a lot of like press history, which I always enjoy in a, in a modern myth. So I'm stoked. But first, we do have to recap the movie. And I believe it's your turn. <laughs> It sure is. Listeners, if you want to avoid spoilers of this uh, tight 73-minute movie, you can also just pause and watch it. Um, But go ahead and move forward about five minutes, and then we'll be ready to go. Yeah, honestly, it's like three bucks on YouTube. Do it. It's good stuff. All right, Julia, I am ready. Do you have the two-minute timer? I got you going. Let's do it. One, two, three. All right. So we are in Scotland. Uh, One of Daphne's cousins, who is definitely queer coded and like has a pixie cut, um, is there. She and her family are doing like a bunch of Highland games. Um, There is a boat captain who would definitely be played by David Tennant in a modern reboot. Um, And basically, Daphne's there to visit with the gang, uh, but they very quickly get embroiled in like a Loch Ness monster uh, sighting and scandal. There are people who are also there, like the kind of classic like doppelganger in a in a mystery machine doppelganger type situation um, who are searching for the Loch Ness Monster. And there's a lot of fun shenanigans uh, that we can get into later. But essentially, they end up trying to investigate whether or not the Loch Ness Monster is really there. And there is a professor, Pembroke, who uh, is cool and comes out of one of those rotating bookcase scenarios that I I covet so hard. Um, And she 
at the end of the day, had engineered a bunch of hoaxes in order to kind of get back at her former mentor um, who owns the lake or thinks that he owns the lake. And there are kind of two different scenarios. One is like a balloon Loch Ness Monster puppet situation that was contrived by the cousins as a prank. And then the other one is like a submarine that was kind of mimicking a big monster in sonar. Um, and so everyone's like, ah, classic, you know, there's there's capitalism, there's like professional revenge, everybody had good intentions, but this is what happened. But at the end of the day, when they are leaving Scotland, um, there's definitely little hints that there could be something real at the bottom of the lake. And we kind of get a glimpse of it as the movie ends. Um, there's also some haggis subplots with uh, Shaggy and Scooby. <laughs> yes. There are some good Scottish sports. Uh, there's a clam bake with Clan Blake, which uh, Eric Silver said probably was the thing that the entire movie was built around. Um, <laughs> and it was overall a very entertaining journey. Perfect. Right on time. Good job, Amanda. Thank you. My other notes from the movie, Julia, included um, the roads look far too wide for Scotland. As a person who has not been to Scotland, I cannot say if that is true or not, but you have, so I trust your judgment. Uh, yes, and accents, of course, questionable at best, or else this would not be a Scooby-Doo movie. Not not a single real Scottish person in this film. <laughs> not nary a one. Um, and then finally, the opening was so groovy. And mm -hmm. I was like, damn, I, you know, uh, uh, psychedelics are not my bag, but I am sad that I could not, like take mushrooms and watch a Scooby-Doo movie when these were really in their prime. Yeah. I know it's available to anybody now. Uh, not not my particular bag, but I imagine that that would be very exciting. Yeah, I will say this did come out in 2004. So not exactly I the mean, height of psychedelics, but that's true. But I feel like, I don't know, if you're like a 90s kid being alt, who knows? I get it. And Julie, the first topic I wanted to discuss with you before we get into your research about the Loch Ness Monster, uh, and we're out of spoily corner uh, for any, any listeners. Oh, who can are we here. do a little more spoily corner? I have thoughts and oh, opinions sure. on the film. Totally agree with you from your description that uh, Shannon Blake, very hot, slightly more butch version of Daphne. All about that. I really did appreciate the, the creepy old man that was there to warn the reckless children. Always, always good. This one rhymed, however, which just brought it up a notch in like creepiness and performance. Yeah. 100%. Very, very good. There is a part in the movie where Velma like kind of believes in the Loch Ness Monster and I believe in everything that Velma believes in. That is just my mantra kind of moving forward in life. Yeah. There's a very good part of the movie too that is just kind of like Scooby-Doo lore that I appreciated where Shannon is giving them a tour of the Blake Castle and there's kind of this joke that Daphne's clan has a tradition of being the damsel in distress, which is like very tropey if you've watched any Scooby-Doo thing. Daphne is always the one that gets like kidnapped or captured and the gang has to save her. And I thought that was like a very funny kind of twist on the traditional canon. Totally. Also, the Loch Ness monster design is truly scary. Like, it is not just like animated Scooby-Doo scary, but genuinely scary looking. It is. They also have, uh, it's also big. And so it's exciting to see a chase scene, you know, with Shaggy and Scooby and the gang that is not like a humanoid, you know, like in a sheet. Yes. Um, so it was, it was sort of inventive and really got like geometrical and kind of abstract. Yes. I really did like the music in this as well. And I went online to kind of check to see who did the music. And on the Wikipedia page, it listed a man named Thomas Chase, which I was like, all right, cool. I wonder what else he did. So I clicked through and his article led to Thomas Chase, who was, quote, a fifth century judge and cleric who was chancellor of the <laughs> University of Oxford and subsequently held the office of Lord Chancellor of Ireland. So I don't think it's that... <laughs> Thomas Chase that wrote the music no, for this? No. I could not be wrong. Not unless there is a sort of time travel 
a situation at work. It's very possible. You never know. It's a Scooby-Doo movie. Also, this is not meddling adults, but I wrote down in my notes at 36 minutes that I'm like, Professor Pembroke is definitely the bad guy. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Just they, they did the whole thing where the boat was locked and then the creature came after them, but it disappeared when it went under the boat. I'm like, well, obviously the creature is underneath the boat. Come on. Guys. Come on, guys. You got this. Also, there's a part where Fred just starts driving a submarine through underwater caves. Sure and does. my argument is like, just because Fred can drive a van does not mean that he can drive a submarine. That is not a transferable expertise. Yeah. He also, at one point, orders Shaggy and Scooby to like go out onto the lake as bait. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Fred, your leadership is not proven enough for me to trust you with something like this. Well, he even makes a joke because he always suggests in every Scooby-Doo episode and movie that they split up and look for clues. And someone else suggested, why don't two of you stay behind? He's like, split up and look for clues. They're like, yeah, Fred, okay, I guess. Yeah. It's very good. Also, a, a final Scooby-Doo note. I My theory now is that Scooby snacks taste differently to everyone who eats them, oh. which is why it's enjoyable for Scooby and Shaggy. Otherwise, Shaggy is just eating like dog treats, and that makes no sense. I mean, there are treats that both humans and dogs can eat and taste of, you know, cinnamon or just biscuits or something. Yeah, but I think this one in particular is like, I'm pretty sure that's just a dog treat. And it's in a box. It's not like, oh, we went to the bakery and the, they had these like safe for dog biscuits. You know what I mean? They're like, no, nah, this yeah. is a thing that we bought at the supermarket. Or Shaggy just has very base tastes. I guess I think so. Now, Amanda, you told me you had some research for me. I do. I have been reading uh, Colin Dickey's fantastic new book, The Unidentified. Um, he is also the author of Ghostland. Well, actually, uh, Eric Silver was reading it before me and was like, hey, there's a whole bit about the Loch Ness Monster. You got to check it out. Yes. Um, and so there is a chapter about kind of the history of Loch Ness Monster sightings and the kind of real life um, facts and events behind the myth. So... Julia, do you have something similar to present or do you want me to kind of take us through? No, take us through. And I might add a couple of things as as we go, but hit me with it. So again, this is uh, all research by Colin Dickey. You can pick up his book, The Unidentified, at your local independent bookstore or at spiritspodcast.com slash books, where there are lists of all of the books that we cite and recommend on the show. The story of Loch Ness Monster, Julia, begins in 1930, uh, where three young men in Loch Ness in Scotland um, were seeing a kind of, quote, great commotion um, about 600 yards away from them in the loch. Uh, And they said, quote, the fish or whatever it was started coming toward us and when it was 300 yards away, it turned to the right. We have no idea what it was, but we're quite positive it could not have been a salmon. Okay. Wasn't the salmon of knowledge, which is good to know. Then they would have known what it was and everything else. But only if they ate it. Yes, only if they ate it. And all of these sightings, Julia, happened to follow a newspaper article about the uh, the situation, which is something that you will see repeat over time. There were like dozens of witnesses and tons of people thought that they had seen Nessie. And so this is kind of where the, um, the, the myth of it begins. Now, Amanda, do you know why that is the case that the sightings started to uh, really grow in the 30s? I think I do, but... I want to hear what you think. The research that I did indicates that you're seeing more of the sightings in the 30s because a road along the lock was built during that time period. So you had more people in cars driving alongside or walking alongside the lock rather than, you know, them only one entering the lock area. So 
you get more sightings because you're driving around it. I really love that. And of course, 1934 is when we have the real flashpoint of uh, gynecologist Robert Kenneth Wilson's photograph, which is called the surgeon's photograph. Mm-hmm. It really became like the thing around which Nessiedom, um, as as Dickie calls it, is really like it's the tentpole of all of this myth. Yeah. Have you seen the picture before, Amanda? It's like the quintessential Nessie photo, if you haven't. That kind of like grainy gray and black photo of kind of like just the neck and the hump coming out of the water. I have. It's it's very striking. It was also taken, Julia, from three quarters of a mile away. Mm-hmm. Isn't that fascinating? I, I didn't know cameras could see that far at that time. Well, the picture that we usually see is a very enhanced version. Well, is a very zoomed in cropped version of the actual right. photo itself. There's no CSI zooming and enhancing going on. That's the aspect ratio that we're used to. It's 1934. And during this initial frenzy of reports, um, even before the photo came out, uh, the newspaper, the Daily Mail, sent this big game hunter named Marmaduke Weatherill, which sounds made up, to Loch Ness to, quote, hunt for the monster. And he announced on December 20th that he had indeed found massive footprints leading to the lakeshore, mm. which kind of supported this uh, idea that this might be a dinosaur or some kind of other like giant kind of, you know, land and sea type creature. It was very soon uh, shown that he had just used a dried hippo's foot, yep. um, which was very common at the time for ashtrays and umbrella stands. Wow, people were terrible. Yeah. Um, and Instead, he just did it for um, either for the paper because they paid him or for show to kind of um, improve his own reputation. Oh, Marmaduke, how could you? And that's kind of where the the Nessie myth laid with, you know, different um, with the photographic evidence and with different individual sightings uh, until there was even more kind of activity in the 50s and 60s. But Julia, do you know anything or can share anything about the sort of origins of like the big lake monster sighting phenomenon? We've talked a lot about lake monsters and stuff in earlier episodes, so I'm not going to like really like get into that. But I would love to say in the movie, Velma claims that, quote, there have been over 2,000 Loch Ness monster sightings dating all the way back to 540 A.D., And uh, I personally couldn't find where they got that exact number of sightings from. And the number has definitely increased since the movie came out in 2004. But according to the PBS science series Nova, the first sighting of Nessie can be traced all the way back to the first century AD when the Romans arrived in northern Scotland. So the Romans noted that they saw depictions of an unrecognizable creature, quote, a strange beast with an elongated beak or muzzle, a head locket or spout, and flippers instead of feet. All I can say, Julia, is that that's not a salmon. That's not definitely not a salmon, in fact. I 100% agree. So the first actual written mention of the monster was somewhere between 500 and 650 AD. Again, the movie says that it's 540. Another source that I saw was 565 AD. But it was part of a biography of the Scottish Saint Columba. So in the story, Saint Columba comes across people burying a man by the river Ness. And they tell the saint that the man had been attacked by a water water beast as he was swimming. He was mauled and then dragged underwater, which sounds very Kelpie-esque to me, you know? Yeah. So St. Columba does the very noble thing and sends one of his followers to swim across the river as bait, much like Fred does to Scooby and Shaggy in this film. So as the man swims, he is approached by the beast, but St. Columba does the sign of the cross and says, go no further, do not touch the man, go back at once. And the monster does. It stops as if it were, quote, pulled back by ropes and then flees into the water not to be seen again. Wow. And so this is the earliest and most detailed account of the creature during this time period. Fascinating. Yeah, isn't that? I love I love when saints do stuff and you're like, 
I see you. I see you. Cool, cool. Also an Irish saint. We have the kind of serpent uh, tie-in. So very, uh, very timely. There you go. Yeah. There were two notable sightings in modernity that um, I think you kind of spoke to a little bit. And these were all before the like infamous George Spicer sighting, which was like that one in the 1930s, which eventually led to the surgeon's photo. So the first sighting that I could find, at least, was by D. McKenzie in October of 1871. It is noted that what he thought was like either a log or an upturned boat. He saw it in the water of the lock. However, as he watched, the object started, quote, wriggling and churning up water before disappearing into the water at like a fast speed. Hmm. So it's like, mm, that probably wasn't a log then if it's moving about and then disappears. No, and it's also quite ominous to kind of see an animal in place. Right. That either means that they're kind of hunting something under the surface or like gathering up the speed to fly or something along those lines. So it's sort of not a that's a behavior that would strike me as as ominous. I feel like that's true. But then I also think of like crocodiles and stuff who just kind of spend a lot of time floating around in the water. So and hippos, for that matter, just like large creatures that are mostly amphibious or spend a lot of time in the water will just kind of hang out there for a while. But anyway. The other one that I would like to note was in 1888. That was Alexander McDonald, who saw, quote, a large stubby-legged animal appear in the lock and then approach the shore, got only to like 50 yards out from the shore before disappearing into the water again. And McDonald would later describe the creature as looking like a large salamander, which I think hmm. is an interesting, and we don't see that kind of image too often in modern examples of the Loch Ness Monster. So I really thought that was an interesting perspective. And I'm always really curious about the sort of elongated nature of most of these descriptions, mm -hmm. because there is, of course, the effect that when you like water distorts um, sight lines. And so when you look at something in the water, it will appear longer than it, it actually is. Um, and your kind of sense of proportion is thrown off, which people have also kind of put forth as um, explanations for the kind of giant sea serpent or, you know, the giant sighting of something that ends up being a, you know, five foot long, <laughs> like <laughs> yes. amphibious uh, actual creature. Yeah. Perspective is weird as hell in the water exactly. I think about, you know, if you go sailing down in, I don't know, someplace with clear waters like the Caribbean or something like that. If you're to look at the bottom, it would seem like the rocks and the coral and the reefs are, I don't know, like five feet down and really they're 20 feet down. So water really magnifies a lot of things. Gotta say that was one of my least favorite parts of AP physics uh, was calculating um, arcs in water. Whew. That's why I didn't take that class. Poop, poop, poop. No senior science class for Julia. <laughs> so, Amanda, like you said, the 1930s really saw the peak of, of Nessie lore, I suppose. George Spicer is the first, like, marked sighting that I have written down. There's also the first photograph, which was taken by a man named Hugh Gray, also in 1933, though most believe it was either a stick that Gray's Labrador dog was swimming after, or he caught like a picture of an otter rolling on its belly. Cute. You know, probably not the Loch Ness Monster. Pretty, pretty clear that it's not. There's also Arthur Grant, who spotted the creature in 1934, which stands out to me because he claimed to have nearly hit the creature with his car as it was crossing the road to get back to the water. Fascinating. I know. Grant was a veterinary student, and so he described the creature as being a cross between a seal and a plesiosaur. Hmm. So in the movie, Velma says, many people have claimed to see the Loch Ness Monster on land. And I'm not sure if like many is truly 
actually the case, but this is at least one example of that. So I really want to hunt that down since I had never heard of Nessie on the land before. Which Amanda brings us up to kind of the modernity of the surgeon's photo. But let's get a refill first before we dive into that. Let's do it. Amanda, I have been decorating my new apartment for a while now. I feel like it's been a a building process. And one of my favorite things to do is create my own artwork for my apartment. And luckily, I stumbled across this class on Skillshare called Sinotypes, an introduction to botanical art prints, create ready to hang art. And oh my God, it has been such a delight. One, I get to go like on hikes and pick out plants and nature. And two, I get to make art out of them. And it's really, really beautiful and easy to do. And I wouldn't be able to do it without this Skillshare class. So Skillshare allows you to explore new skills, deepen existing passions, and get really like lost in your creativity. You can learn about illustration or design or photography or video or freelancing or like so many other things. Amanda recommended an incredible beer class that I took recently as well with the brewmaster at Brooklyn Brewery and it was delightful. But Skillshare is a great way to stay inspired, to express yourself and to help connect to a community of creatives just like I did when I took the Sinotypes class. So you can explore your creativity at Skillshare.com Spirits2, where our listeners get two free months of premium membership. Again, that's two months free at Skillshare.com Spirits2. That is Skillshare.com Spirits2. Amanda, that's a nice haircut you got there. Oh, thank you. It's only a couple weeks old, but you probably couldn't tell because it looks so styling and so put together and not frizzy in this humidity at all, thanks to Function of Beauty. Function of Beauty is hair care that's formulated specifically for you. No matter what your hair type is or what your needs are, they create shampoo, conditioner, and other treatments like uh, body lotion or body wash to fit your unique needs. It is so unique, in fact, that there are over 54 trillion possible ingredient combinations to make sure the formula is as unique as you are. That is so many, Amanda. And it's really, really simple to do. All you have to do is take a quick but very thorough quiz, tell them about your hair, and their team determines what the like right blend of ingredients is for you. And then they bottle your custom formula to order, which is great. And then they just deliver it to your door in a very cute, customizable bottle with like a fragrance that you picked out and the colors that you like. It's very, very cool. Absolutely. They're vegan, they're cruelty-free, and they don't include sulfates, parabens, or any other harmful ingredients, which I am trying to be more mindful of as I buy my beauty products. They are also the top-rated customized hair care brand with over 40,000 real five-star reviews and counting. I really love that you get to also change the amount of fragrance, Mm. and you can choose the fragrance, you can choose the bottle color. It truly is delightful. It really feels like a very pleasant pastel shopping uh, experience in the comfort of your own home. So why are you waiting to treat your hair good? Go to functionofbeauty.com slash spirits to take your four-part hair profile quiz and save 20% on your first order. Again, that is functionofbeauty.com slash spirits for 20% off and to let them know you heard from our show. Functionofbeauty.com slash spirits. And Julia, we are finally sponsored this week by Fubo TV, which is powering the uh, NBA playoffs in my household. Uh, <laughs> cable, they, they have this phrase called cord nevers instead of cord cutters, people who switch from cable to streaming services. Uh, people like me who have never had cable, and there's no reason to because we have stuff like Fubo TV to get live sports, news, and primetime TV without complicated contracts. They charge just $65 a month to watch the same channels as you could get for a monthly cable subscription of like $200 plus. You also don't pay for a DVR or an installation or like an exit fee. No kinds of gimmicks here, no contracts, and that is a definite plus. 
You can get everything you want in one place. They have over 100 channels. You can stream to your TV or any other smart device, including the major broadcasting cable networks, which can be surprisingly hard to find streams of um, if you don't have a service like Fubo. And you'll never miss primetime shows, including something like, I don't know, House Hunters, which I super enjoy. So there is no risk to try it out. Get full access to Fubo TV for seven days for free at FuboTV.com slash spirits. That's FuboTV.com slash spirits for the seven-day free trial plus 15% off your first month. There are no contracts and you can cancel anytime. Yep, that's FuboTV.com slash spirits for 15% off your first month and a free trial. FuboTV.com slash spirits. Amanda, there are obviously a lot of cocktails about Nessie and the Loch Ness Monster and all of that. And I feel like none of them are truly a Loch Ness Monster cocktail, though, unless you have scotch whiskey in there. Sure, that makes total sense to me. And normally that is not my type of thing, but I actually kind of like this one. I can appreciate a very good scotch whiskey if it is put in front of me and doesn't taste like banana bread. That's my personal <laughs> opinion. But uh, this one is the Nessie cocktail. It has a 12-year-old scotch whiskey. It's got a single malt scotch whiskey. It's got a little bit of sweet vermouth in there, a little bit of sherry, and then a dash of whiskey barrel aged bitters. Fascinating. Yeah. Or I think you could just have some scotch on the rocks. I think that's also a good option. I do like to always provide a cocktail option in case people want to put something together. But hey, if you got a 12-year scotch whiskey somewhere, just pour yourself a glass. Two, two little uh, spring water drops and it'll open up the whiskey for you. That's what I learned from Jake. That's what Jake tells me indeed. And hey, you know, making cocktails and, and mixed drinks with spirits is a great way to learn about new spirits and acquire new tastes for yourself. So no no hating on that at all. Not at all. So Julie, would you like to hear uh, what we have learned in modernity about the surgeon's photo? Yes, I, I think I know, but please tell me. So in 1975, uh, Marmaduke Weatherill's son, Ian, admitted that he, his father, his stepbrother, and a few others um, together faked the surgeon's photograph. How do you, sorry, how do you go from the name Marmaduke to Ian? You got to keep the tradition of wonderful naming alive. Come on. I mean, Ian is a respectable Scottish name. But it's but, not Marmaduke. I mean, it's not Marmaduke. That's for sure. And the reason Weatherill did it is because he was so humiliated that his footprint hoax with the hippo's foot was revealed. Mm -hmm. um, so he instead then of releasing the photo himself because he felt like his reputation was damaged because it was, he gave it to his buddy, the doctor, in order to confer legitimacy on the photo. Robert Kenneth Wilson was the, the supposed name of the doctor. Yeah. And calling it the surgeon's photo is such a like grasp at legitimacy. Oh, so that makes so complete much. sense. It's like, oh, but he's a doctor. In 91, Weatherill's stepson, Christopher Sperling, um, Ian Weatherill's stepson, that is, uh, also uh, kind of confirmed that again, saying, quote, it's not a genuine photograph. It's a load of cod's wallop and always has been. <sighs> Love the word cod's wallop. But, Julia, this is not the only conspiracy that happened around the birth of the Nessie myth. Tell me about it. In 1986, Nessie enthusiast Henry H. Bauer revealed that the monster itself was an invention. According to writer David Garrity, he confessed to slash claimed credit for conjuring up the monster in uh, this book, Maurice. In the early 1930s, I, with two young partners, ran a publicity service in London. Um, Dickie continues to uh, kind of summarize. They'd been offered a small contract by a group of hotels near the lock to drum up more business. Mm. And at the same time, another client of theirs, a realtor in British Columbia, mentioned that he himself had helped invent the legend of Ogopogo a sea serpent oh, supposedly yeah. living in Lake Okanagan. Yes, which we've talked about in our Lake Monsters episode. Yes. And so Garrity said, this was corn in Egypt, which I guess means it was successful. Yeah. Um, 
the uh, lossy myth member of the firm told us that for centuries, a legendary creature was supposed to dwell in Loch Ness. We'd never heard of it. But over several pints of beer, we became, quote, midwives of the reborn Loch Ness monster. All we had to do was arrange for the monster to be sighted. This we did, and the story snowballed. Thousands went north to see it, and see it they did. It was, of course, pure hokum. What year did he say that he did all of this? He said this in 1986. Did he say what year, though, they did the kind of first sighting? Or All they said was the early 1930s. Mm, okay, so it was the 30s. It wasn't... Okay, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So that sounds like somebody also claiming credit for being smart. Um, so it's it's possible that that is not the case, but I thought that that was totally fascinating. I do like that idea, the concept of it being like, oh, okay, well, we do want people to come here. Why don't we take a legend that not a lot of people have heard of and turn it into like a national sensation? Like that is a, yeah. that's a good idea. That's a way to drum up tourism. Look at Point Pleasant in West Virginia. Like they have yeah. a literal Mothman festival now every year. And from 1962 to 1971, a group called the Loch Ness Phenomena Investigation Bureau conducted paid sighting operations and tours and like yeah. photographic kind of expeditions. So, you know, it is bringing tourism to a region and I'm sure people still stop by or at least, you know, make a make a, a stop off on their way to somewhere else um, to see the famous Loch Ness. Yeah, it's it's like I would go to Loch Ness. I know it's kind of like out of the way and stuff, but I would 100 percent go. We need to see those giant uh, uh, Kelpie heads first. Yes, but then obviously. we can definitely go to Loch Ness. Yes. We could we could make a, a trip, make a whole road trip out of it. Ah, What a dream. But Amanda, does the book say what they, they think the actual photo was? Like what they used to kind of pose that photograph? Because I have information no. on that. Please tell me. So uh, like you said, it was kind of um, dismissed as a hoax in the 1990s. Um, and that's the general consensus now among uh, Nessie cryptozoologists and stuff like that. What the photo actually is, is probably a toy submarine that they built kind of a sculpture on and then photographed as it moved through the water so that they would get the ripples and stuff like that. That's why they always use the really zoomed in photo, because if you look at the like whole photo, you can see the scale of the shore to the monster, it's actually very, very small. Got it. Yeah. I mean, pretty ingenious. Yeah, it's it's really... Especially in 1930s. I know, 1930s. That's a pretty solid deal. I bet the submarine would have been like steam powered then. Or like clockwork, like just you twist clockwork, it and it's go true. through. I've seen lots of uh, steam powered ships that you have to put like real uh, kind of explosive material in on um, the British antique show that I love so much. Really? Oh, cool. I've never heard of that before. So the purpose of this Loch Ness Monster chapter in Dickie's book is to kind of talk about um, like the end of monsters. That was the the name of the section. And this idea that, you know, as sort of the Victorians started adopting the Linnaean classification system, which having the genus and the species, it was easier to say like, oh, okay, this monster might be a member, like it might be a, a plesiosaur. It might be related to the giant squid. Mm -hmm. And it's not like a creature that we cannot place this sort of like move toward taxonomy made it easier to relate images like this and legends like this to things that were, you know, scientifically accepted. Yeah. And maybe inspiration for the professor in the movie. Um, in 1957, a writer, Constance White, who'd lived along not Loch Ness for 20 years, um, published a book called More Than a Legend, The Story of the Loch Ness Monster. I love it. She rejected the findings of the Linnaean Society, um, which 23 years earlier had ruled like this is nothing. Mm -hmm. And she wrote, 
the Loch Ness story challenges beliefs which are integral to the makeup of most established zoologists. Her book, um, Dickie says, was written for a general audience and with a common folk wisdom and argued that the problem with trained biologists was their willful ignorance, their acceptance of dogma, and their refusal to accept observational evidence directly in front of them. And so this kind of goes into a really fascinating uh, kind of account of the birth of cryptozoology that you would really find fascinating listener if you are enjoying the show. And there really is like one man who kind of typifies this rejection from traditional science of like the unexplained and kind of the birth of cryptozoology. Um, his name was Dennis Tucker. Uh, he worked at the Natural History Museum in 1949 as its curator of fishes. He visited the Loch Ness um, area in March 22nd of 1959, uh, which was two years after White's book had come out. So the sort of interest was rekindling and, and the myth was kind of having another surge. And there he saw a dark hump moving across the water that didn't match anything he knew about aquatic life. Also, curator of fishes is an incredible title and something that I want to have. It, it really is. But in surveillance state being bad, um, his employer, the Natural History Museum, their board learned that he was sort of like interested in Nessie or entertaining its existence. And they sent out a rude memo that reads, what? the trustees wish it to be known that they do not approve of the spending of official time or official leave on the so-called Loch Ness phenomenon. They take this opportunity of warning all concerned that if, as a result of the activities of members of the staff, the museum is involved in undesirable publicity, they will be gravely displeased. Wow, fuck off. And so a few years ago, they had uh, fallen for a supposed piece of Yeti scalp mm. that was actually from a pig. That'll do um, it. So that kind of explains their, their hesitance. Uh, but Tucker was like, no. Oh, fuck you guys. So the museum fired him. Uh, and it sucks. And he should have filed a, a wrongful termination suit. But unions had not yet negotiated the kinds of protections that some workers enjoy today. That's so shitty. Oh, my God. Indeed. Dickie says the monster claimed its first victim, which I thought was very funny. <laughs> Good job, Dickie. And so by 1982, a bunch of other scientists and researchers, uh, many of whom had also become pariahs in their fields for being interested in um, cryptids and water beasts specifically, came together to make the International Society of Cryptozoology. And they founded the magazine Cryptozoology. And I have to say, Julia, that like I had sort of previously seen cryptozoology as a sort of like, isn't that sweet? You know, people are um, applying the tools of science, which we know to be like, quote unquote, real to things that most people accept to be, quote unquote, fake. But I think that that is a really kind of like biased toward the establishment view of things. And I think that in general, in spirits, like we're, we're open minded, we're interested, we want to kind of see why people think things are important, uh, whether or not they are important to me myself. And I just thought it, it was really fascinating to read about the birth of cryptozoology as people saying, you know, don't shut off evidence before you entertain it. Don't refuse to see something because it's confusing or it doesn't, you know, like adhere to your beliefs that you have already. Absolutely. Oh, that's that's such a great point. And I would love to talk about some uh, modern searches by scientists and cryptozoologists uh, for Nessie. Absolutely. But uh, first, let's talk about sightings in the 2000s. Every year or so, there's probably like a new supposed sighting of Nessie, which I really, really enjoy. Every time one pops up, I love seeing the photos and looking at them. Plenty of enthusiasts and scientists alike and cryptozoologists uh, dedicate their time and energy into investigating the existence and nature of of the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, one of the most recent photos was actually taken in 2020. Held the Loch Ness Monster was actually trending on Twitter only a few months ago. Uh, and I'm going to send you a photo, Amanda, and you're going to tell me what you think. Interesting. Mm. I'm zooming in. <laughs> enhance, enhance. Uh, it's a beautiful color. 
looks probably like a seal in reality, mm-hmm. but the the shape of it, if it kind of adheres to like shapes of creatures that I know in my brain, I can definitely see this being like one hump of a sort of sea serpent, you know? Yes. It's probably just a seal and the head is just below water and the edge of the tail is just below water and it's actually just that long. But it definitely is like evocative of a a wider shape. Well, Amanda, thank goodness for Twitter and the cryptozoologists and Nessie enthusiasts and scientists on there because they proved that it's actually a Photoshop job. And this is a picture of a giant catfish. Let me send you that tweet real quick. Oh, (laughs) no. Oh, my God. That catfish is so big. It's so big. That's the only cryptid that I need to know about. It's horrifying that it's that big. Genuinely, it's horrifying. (laughs) Oh, boy. But yeah, I I think it's really interesting that we are able to pool our resources so much better and people who aren't just scientists, like with degrees at museums and at colleges and stuff like that, are able to kind of pool their efforts and tell whether or not these are legit. But it's not as though scientists and those people working at colleges and museums are completely dismissing the idea of Nessie. There are plenty of people who are investigating it, uh, even if so many sightings and pictures have been proven false. A professor, Neil Gemmel, who is a geneticist from the University of Otago in New Zealand, led a team to take analysis of traces of DNA in Loch Ness. From their findings, they did not find any presence of any large animals like uh, dinosaurs or lake monsters or anything like that. But they did find a lot of eel DNA. Ooh. So here's the quote from Professor Gemmel. He said, Eels are very plentiful in the lock system. Every single sampling site that we went to pretty much had eels, and the sheer volume of it was a bit of a surprise. So Professor Gemmel and his team firmly believe that Nessie might just be a big old eel. So here's the, the final quote from him. He says, We cannot exclude the possibility that there are giant eels in Loch Ness, but we don't know whether these samples we've collected are from a giant beast or just an ordinary one. So there's still an element of we just don't know. Fascinating. I love that. And it's actually a very good segue, if I may, yes, into my, my last and uh, goosebump-raising part Ooh. of The Unidentified. The guy who coined the words cryptid and cryptozoology, Bernard Hovelmans, <laughs> uh, has a doctorate in zoology, but was kind of far more successful and known as a cryptid hunter than as a zoologist. Love it. And he says that in order to qualify as a cryptid, it's not just like a weird beetle or like a new tree frog. It has to be something, quote, truly singular, unexpected, paradoxical, striking, emotionally upsetting, and thus capable of mythification. Oh, that is such a cool definition. I love that. I love that one of the qualifications is upsetting. I mean, it is, right? Like, if we think about the the commonalities, it's something that, like, wow, a, you know, something that we think of as non-human shouldn't be as human as it is. Like, that, to me, is what sticks out about the Yeti. Or, you know, the Loch Ness Monster, like, the proportions are wrong. To me, it was always that the proportion of the creature to the lake was wrong. Mm -hmm. And I was like, where are you hiding that? You know, like, how is that fitting in there? It's so big. Where is it going? And then, finally, um, George Simpson said that the aim of cryptozoology is, quote, to demythify mythical beasts, Mm -hmm. to search hopefully to find the objective living animal from which the myth developed. And then Dickie just puts it so well, the search for cryptids is not just a search for a re-enchanted wilderness. Cryptids are not fairies, unicorns, or leprechauns. They are mythical, but not mystical. 
Rather than a re-enchanted wilderness, the cryptozoologist seeks a re-enchanted science, a science of adventure and discovery, a romantic science of discovery that the cryptozoologist feels has been lost in an overly technocratic age. I love that. Wow. What? That's such a great passage. And it really does like kind of touch on why so many people are drawn to cryptozoology as a thing. It's this idea that there is still unknown left in the world. Like we feel like, at least I feel like so much of the world is like still so explained away, you know? And so the idea that there is something big and mythical that we just haven't been able to prove is out there is out there. It's why I think like Bigfoot stories are so fascinating, why people dedicate their lives to trying to find Bigfoot and why alien encounters are still very much prevalent in our media. It's just we want to believe that the world is a little bit more mysterious than it actually is. It is. And it's it's why it rankles when people, you know, explain away the accomplishments of like Mayans or ancient societies. Um as aliens like no they just knew what they were doing and the fact that you assume that they didn't you know show something about you and why the co-option of some from indigenous stories into cryptids like calling what is a you know a creature that people have known about talked about that has a mythology and a place and a history as just like oh just another cryptid is also wrong because it's not about re-enchanting a place that you know settlers once found enchanting and unknown it's A completely different side of things, which is, you know, we know this landscape intimately and these are, you know, stories that we have about the place that we are from. So it's it's just it's not simple. It's not just one thing. Um, But this kind of origins of cryptozoology discussion and being more aware, too, of what we call a cryptid, what we call cryptozoology is just another way that we can, you know, better appreciate the world around us, no matter how we classify the things that we see. Yeah, to that point, uh, we've had a lot of people ask for us to do, for example, a Wendigo episode, which I would love to do if we could get a guest on who is from the indigenous traditions where the Wendigo is a spirit. But the Wendigo is in particular not a cryptid. It is a spirit of a living tradition. And we try our best to honor that as much as possible. We've reached out to some um, Native American scholars who have uh, talked about Wendigo. But if anybody um, has a specific suggestion or uh, you yourself are from this tradition and would like to talk about it, our inbox is always open. Yes. And that falls under the category of any indigenous living tradition that we talk about on the show. It is something that I try to be as aware of as possible. Yeah. And go for people who have first person experience um, whenever possible. And to Dickie's point about the idea of re-enchanted science, I think that the movie kind of leaves us on this note where uh, they say, you know, some mysteries are just better left unsolved. And I think that in in the case of Nessie, I don't want someone to, you know, universally prove it wrong. You know, I think it's better to kind of live in a world where it could be possible. Yeah. And, you know, again, Dickie comes through. He says cryptids resist all attempts at categorization. To believe in them is to refuse the proposition that science can find a taxonomical place for every living thing. They are the remainders. And then he closes the chapter in a way that I would not be so bold as to do as a writer, but I (laughs) super respect the cryptozoology in general. Uh rejects not just a Linnaean view of the world, so again, that's like classifying and and taxonomy, but of a religious one as well. A rejection of God's command to Adam to take dominion over the natural world. How can we take dominion over a world if its corners remain murky? 
damn, all right. It's great. Listen, that is anti, like, Gaja Adam. That is anti-colonialist. That is anti-taxonomical. This book is great. Damn, Dickie. The Unidentified. Yes, we will we'll put a link to it in the show notes, for sure. Now, Amanda, I think that was a, a great discussion for a 72-minute Scooby-Doo movie. Uh, we are rivaling the length of the movie in the length of this episode, which I... Uh, usually make fun of movie recap podcasts that go longer than the movie. But in this case, listen, we're, we're bringing knowledge. We're, we're complementing the movie with, uh, with research and quotations and uh, that, that spirit je ne sais quoi of rejecting capitalism and the man, you know? But not complimenting the terrible Scottish accents. Come on, Scooby-Doo. There are voice actors who are Scottish and can do Scottish accents. <laughs> I will also just say that I, uh, I I miss Scotland terribly. I have been reading a lot of books set in Scotland. And uh, all of you listeners who write to us about walking on misty moors while listening to spirits, whether that's in Scotland, Ireland, Northern Ireland, um, or somewhere else with, with wonderful cliffs, um, shoot us a picture. We would love to uh, retweet it or uh, repost on Instagram and show the spooky views to which you are hearing our voices. Oh, actually, Amanda, that gives me a quick aside before we finish the episode, because a yeah. lot of this movie talks about the Highland Games, right? That's kind of the yeah. whole like plot point that they're surrounding other than the Loch Ness Monster stuff. And it is a fun fact that you, Amanda, if you miss kind of Scottish tradition and culture, there is a Highland Games in Old Westbury every year. Really? So we can go one of these years. Fascinating. I will say I prefer Gaelic football to most any other sport that I have seen from uh, Scotland or Ireland, but that's just me showing my loyalties, you know? I'm a, I'm a big fan of the caber toss, which is basically like when they run and toss that like tree-sized log. That's my favorite, personally. It is very impressive looking. Yeah. And the first recorded games, Amanda, of the Highland Games is 1871, but like the tradition comes from the reign of Malcolm III around 1030. And the story goes that Malcolm III summoned men to run an elaborate race in order to find the fastest runner in Scotland to be his royal messenger. Fascinating. Yeah. Tyrannical. You just, you can't make it up. Yeah. And now they are held the final weekend of every August, the largest being the Cowell Highland Gathering. That sounds amazing. And one of these days, I will make it up to uh, to Scotland in the summertime. One day. One day. We'll make a whole trip out of it, I feel like. I think that would be fun. Yeah. Okay. I'm here for it. All right. Let's start planning after the pandemic ends. <laughs> so, everybody, thank you for sticking with us. Uh, please send us your photos of, uh, of creepy views um, that you have seen while listening to Spirits. And remember, stay creepy. Stay cool. Thanks again to our sponsors. At Skillshare.com slash Spirits 2, you can get two free months of Skillshare Premium. At FunctionOfBeauty.com slash Spirits, you can get 20% off your first order. And at FuboTV.com slash Spirits, you can get a seven-day free trial plus 15% off your first month.